as has already been mentioned, what a blessing it is to come together again this Sunday afternoon and to understand that what a privilege and a blessing that is ours to be able to not only assemble as we are, but in the course of that assemblage to bless ourselves in terms of the proper worship, but also to honor the God of heaven. Certainly we're thankful for the presence of each and every person who is able to be with us tonight. We know there are those who, due to illness or otherwise, are not able to be. And this evening, as we continue a series of lessons that we began this morning, we will turn our attention tonight to Jesus Christ, but as the centerpiece of the Old Testament. This morning, we use the time before us to look to the 27 books of the New Testament and appreciate in them that He is the centerpiece in each one of the books, point us in the direction of the blessings we have available through Him. But perhaps we aren't that surprised that the Old Testament is much the same. This opening slide tonight is an introduction to this particular lesson, and it'll look very familiar to the opening slide that we appreciated this morning. Of the 66 Bible books, 39 of them are in the Old Testament, and each one of them, too, is a powerful message in its own right, presenting truths and matters connected to the issues of that day, but also contained in each one of them is a golden thread of truth, woven in such a way that they all pointed to the reality of Jesus the Christ. And so, too, He is the centerpiece of the Old Testament, just as He is of the New. And so tonight, we'll do something similar to that which we did this morning. I hope that you have your Bible available, and we will take just a brief consideration of each one of those books, casting a spotlight upon the presence of the Master in it, the message that He makes available through the nature of that particular book. Without any further ado, why don't we get underway with the opening book in all the Bible, the book of Genesis. In that opening book, we learn who Jesus is in this respect in Genesis 3, verse 15. You and I well recall the saga, the scene connected to the fallen Eden. And yet, as the Father made direct statement, of course, to Adam and Eve and the serpent, in verse 15, this statement is made, that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. But of course, that serpent would be able to bruise the heel of that one. And so we learn in Christ that He is the seed of the woman. But not only that, that He would bruise or crush the power of the archenemy of God and man. Later in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, 18, that same matter appears in this fashion. That Jesus is the one through whom all nations of the earth would be blessed. Because that teaching was told to Abraham... And later in Galatians 3, that idea is revisited and shown to be the very matter of Jesus the Christ. In the book of Exodus, who is Christ? Of course, much time has passed since the early days in Genesis. And yet in Exodus, we learn immediately in chapters 12 and 13 that God gave order and commandment relative to a Passover and that they were to employ blood on the lentils and the doorpost. And the statement is made, when I see the blood... I will pass over you, Exodus 12, 13. When you and I turn to 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, we're there told Jesus is our Passover. He is the one through which God will pass over our sins because they've been forgiven. That blessing, that consideration, of course, we saw woven into the book of Exodus long before in the days of the Old Testament. In the book of Leviticus, what is it we learn about the Master? First of all, we see Leviticus is surrounding the topic of the Levites, and so it's the high priest Aaron, as well as those that could serve as priests. 
the, speaking of the high priest, we in fact noted it in passing this morning in Hebrews 3 verse 1 that Jesus is our high priest. That is to say, He is the one who is able to stand by way of atonement before God on our behalf. And yet, Aaron in the Old Testament was at least a typical one offering in the days of that time a feature that gives us an understanding of the importance of the high priest. In the book of Numbers, who is the Christ? Could we not appreciate the people of God had come out of Egypt by this time? And they, of course, were wandering in that wilderness headed toward Canaan land. But yet we learn that the rock that followed them, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, was Christ. And so even in the wilderness wandering, Jesus was a critical element. He was one who was in fact the preserver and protector of them. Oddly enough, they were even baptized unto Moses also in that same consideration, giving us an understanding of even the matter of baptism in that day. In the book of Deuteronomy, who is the Christ? We immediately learn in Deuteronomy the nature of how that there would be raised up a prophet not unlike Moses. And yet, we understand in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 that that one was referring to Christ. The prophet that was raised up that would be so powerful and mighty like Moses had been would in fact be even greater than Moses. It would be Jesus because this was quoted in Acts chapter 3 and directly applied to Jesus the Christ. So far we've seen so much in these opening five books that pointed us to the reality of Jesus. How about the book of Joshua? The sixth book of the Old Testament and now the people of Israel have reached the very border of Canaan land. As they cross and head into it, this is used in Hebrews chapter 4 as a direct correspondence to Christ. Just like Joshua led them into the promised land, Jesus will lead us, His faithful children, into the promised land that you and I will call heaven on some golden, marvelous day. And therefore, Jesus too is the one described on that slide as the conqueror and the one who is the captain of our salvation. A statement, in fact, utilized and described in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. In the book of Judges, who is the Christ? He is the Lord our judge, to bar the exact wording of Judges eleven twenty-seven. There, the immediate reference was to Jephthah. And yet, there was a part in that that pointed down the stream of time to the reality of the greatest of all the judges, namely Jesus. When we come to the book of Ruth, who is the Christ? Who do we learn that He is from that little book? Although it's a sweet love story, and we learn about Ruth and Boaz in it, we find as the book ends that Jesus is our prime kinsman and the one who will serve for us as the primary one who will come out of the lineage of not only Boaz, but also David. All of that's highlighted in the last few verses of that book. As we come to the next book, namely, the book of Samuel, who is the Christ? I combine the two books of First and Second Samuel, and in them do we not immediately learn this from Second Samuel 7. In that book and in that chapter, we have a remarkable prophecy, an incredible statement delivered to David. It is said that of his seed, of his lineage, of those that will descend through him, there will be raised up a king who in fact will have an eternal kingdom. 
Now, you and I know that was not talking about Solomon. It was talking about the Christ who would be the seed of David. And thus, we learn even in Samuel that Jesus was the one to whom that prophecy foretold. When you and I come to the kings, what do we learn? Who is the Christ? We learn that there were many kings. A few of them were good. Most of them were not. And yet in them, we learn that there's a tremendous pattern of what one ought to be as a king. And of course, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 17, 14 acclaims that truth as well as Revelation 19, 16. And so all of those, some of them quite sorry, others quite good. And yet even the good ones failed in a tremendous way, but they at least held out the reality of that kingdom until the Christ could come. As we come, in fact, to the book of Chronicles, again, I combine both of them. In the Chronicles, we find that there are many references to those same kings. But I thought that perhaps the most interesting one to include here in terms of Christ was this. In 1 Chronicles 29.15, again looking forward from the days that that was presented, we learn that Jesus is the provider of a safe haven. And not only a safe haven, but a haven for strangers and pilgrims. May I point out that the Hebrew writer in chapter 11 also makes use of that truth. And in fact, you and I, though we may sojourn upon this earth, we too will look to that time wherein we will inhabit a place from which we will never, ever be moved aside. That brings us to the book of Ezra. In the chapters that we call the book of Ezra, when one asks about the Christ, who is He? May I suggest two things stand out as it gives us consideration for Jesus. First, an emphasis is laid in the book of Nehemiah by the man known as Ezra. And he pointed them to the reality of true worship. And didn't Jesus do that? For God's a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. But not only that, Ezra was a man of restoration to restore what Israel was to be after the days of the captivity. In fact, you and I notice that that same idea is presented in Isaiah 49, verse 6. Speaking of Christ, the one who restores us, those sinners we are, to a rightful place where God would wish us to be. What about Nehemiah? In Nehemiah 9 verse 12, an emphasis is laid upon the truthfulness of the covenant and one who keeps covenant and mercy. Not only is God that way, but Christ is as well. And in Matthew 26, 28, didn't Jesus Himself say, This blood is the New Testament shed for many for the remission of sins. And every time we surround the Lord's table, we commemorate the nature of the Lord's presentation and we reflect upon the nature of His blood and that for which it stands, and the new covenant that it brought in place. After we close the book of Nehemiah, what about Esther? The ten chapters of the book of Esther remind us of a rather perilous time in the ancient people of Israel. But could I suggest this? In there we learn Jesus is the means of God's prime deliverance. We see that in Esther 4, verse 14. And in the passage that's there put before us, notice that's presented in Romans eleven twenty six. 26. 
Jesus is our deliverer. He is the one out of Zion who is the deliverer of mankind. Wasn't that principle set before us in Esther? Closing the book of Esther, we come to the book of Job. In Job, we learn something dramatic. We learn from Job 9, verse 33, that Job longed for and looked for a daysman. He did not have one. We today do. What Job never had, we now enjoy. We live beneath the new covenant. Jesus has now come. He is our daysman. He is our mediator. He is the go-between between you and me and God. And as such, we have the precious honor and privilege of what Job never had. May I suggest what a blessing is ours because Christ is our daysman. What about the book of Psalms? Many could have been selected, I suppose, from the 150 Psalms, but I'm sure the most well-known is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And isn't it true? Jesus, of course, affirmed that He is the good shepherd in John chapter 10. And isn't it so that indeed He is our shepherd? The book of Proverbs. We learn in this book that Christ Jesus is, in fact, the wisdom. And not only that, He is the life pointed out to us in such dramatic truth in Proverbs 4.13, as well as John 14, verse 6. In that particular passage in Proverbs, wisdom is personified. And it is, in fact, tailored in the representation to Jesus our Savior. Following Proverbs, what about Ecclesiastes? Written by Solomon, of course. And yet in that book we find, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. As God has set before us then the prime duty, the privilege of living and what it's all about, is it not true that we learn, among other things, that we must be mighty careful about the language and the affirmation we give unto God? Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2, and that, of course, referred to Christ, as it is embodied in many of the teachings that Jesus shared. After that book, what about the Song of Solomon? In the eight chapters of the Song of Solomon, we might ask, among other things, we learn the loveliness that goes with the bridegroom. Now, it was Solomon in that book, admittedly. But in chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, there are some things that point out to us the cruelty of jealousy as well as the unsurpassed beauty and strength of love. And, of course, we see in the New Testament how that Jesus embodies all of those due to His love for us. As we close the Song of Solomon, what about the prophets? The last 17 books of the Old Testament are the prophetical books. What about Isaiah? What is Christ in the, in the book of Isaiah? In chapter 53, He is the suffering servant. In fact, in such dramatic detail, we see this truth. By His stripes we are healed. He was wounded for our transgressions. It is our chastisement that, of course, ought to have been the case, but He took it for us. All of that is laid out seven and a half centuries before Jesus was ever born. He is detailed as the suffering servant. In the book of Jeremiah, we come to chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. Earlier tonight, that was read in her hearing. Joe read for us from Jeremiah 23. And in that text, do you notice 
that the Lord Jesus is who is under discussion, and Jeremiah prophesied that He would be the King over His kingdom. In the next verse, He is called the Lord our righteousness. He, is, in fact, is the King over the kingdom. In Jeremiah's day, the people longed to have that kingdom, and in many ways, they thought it was always going to be physical. And yet, Jesus Himself would say, My kingdom is not of this world, John 18, 36. You and I know the church is His kingdom. What about the book of Lamentations? The book of Lamentations, what is the Christ? He is our hope. God preserved those people so that ultimately the Christ could come into this world and be the blessing that heaven intended Him to be. And yet in Lamentations 3 verse 24, we find the grandeur of the hope therein described. And isn't that, of course, highlighted for us in Colossians 1.27? Jesus is our hope. Following the Lamentations, what about Ezekiel? In the 48 chapters of Ezekiel, we learn that Christ is the one who is able to resurrect and bring back to life, just like He did in that valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37. Christ Jesus will be the one to resurrect to life. Did He not say in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life? He told that to Martha, despite the fact her brother had just died. And yet, we remember that Jesus brought Lazarus back to life. And we know that He too can instill us with life as well. Finally, what about the book of Daniel? In Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, we learn that who is the Christ? He is the Son of Man who passed through the clouds to the Ancient of Days. And He received a kingdom and dominion and majesty and might. That was fulfilled in Acts chapter 1. When after His resurrection, Jesus ascended back to heaven. And He indeed received a kingdom. He received the church. What Daniel had seen centuries before was the Son of Man passing through the clouds of the Ancient of Days. We now come to the Minor Prophets. What about the book of Hosea? What is the Christ in the book of Hosea? May I suggest in Hosea 11 verse 1, we read a prophecy exactly about the Christ, namely He'd be brought out of Egypt. And so He was. We appreciate the marvelous character of how that was quoted in the book of Matthew, chapter 2 verse 15. And thus, Jesus, that very one. As we next come to the book of Joel, what is the Christ? The little three-chapter book of Joel highlights for you and me the character of the one on whom one can depend for deliverance. God's people at that time were in great need of deliverance from the onslaught of those locusts. And yet... As the deliverance was promised, it was ultimately looking forward to an even greater appreciation, and that would be the Christ. Specifically, Joel 2.32, that was quoted on the day of Pentecost by Peter himself and applied directly to the events of that day. Aren't you impressed with Joel as the prophet of Pentecost? But after the book of Joel, what about Amos? Who is the Christ in the book of Amos? In Amos 9, verses 11 to 15, we find a passage that's quoted in the book of Acts, chapter 15, and it referred to what would be the case concerning the kingdom of the Christ, the church. In fact, that text was quoted by James in Acts chapter 15, and it was explained 
as referring to the blessing connected to the Christ. As we come to our next of the minor prophets, the book of Obadiah, the only one chapter book in the Old Testament. Who is the Christ in the book of Obadiah? And what benefit is there to appreciate in that book the appearance of the Christ? It would seem it occurs in verse 21. Obadiah was the one who was able to describe the grandeur and the reality of a kingdom that not only was existent in the days that you and I appreciated the days of the Christ, but it was foretold to the Edomites, the very descendants of Esau in the book of Obadiah. Now, I would say that that for all of us should be rather surprising. Here was God's people, the Israelites, and yet God foretold even to the Edomites there was going to be a kingdom, and it would be far greater than any kingdom due only to men. Passing the book of Obadiah, what about Jonah? Who is the Christ in the book of Jonah? Jesus quoted the book of Jonah. In Matthew chapter 12, He said, The sign, the only sign you're going to be given is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so too the Son of Man, the Lord said, would be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. Now the nature of the events connected to Jonah thus provided a sign or at least an issue Jesus could use to refer to Himself. As we pass the book of Jonah, in the book of Micah, who is the Christ, in Micah 5 verse 2 we encounter the passage that Herod was told when he was asked, where is the Christ to be born? And even those of his day were able to say, well, Micah foretold it would be in Bethlehem. That's because Micah 5 verse 2 said it. And so in Micah we learn that the Christ would be the one born in Bethlehem of Judea. That kind of amazing truth again was written over 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus as recorded in Matthew chapter 2. After we cross that book of Micah, what about Nahum? The little three-chapter book of Nahum, who is the Christ foretold to you and me in that book? He is the one who publishes peace. The book of Nahum was written as a matter of destruction for the Ninevites, the city of Nineveh. And yet in it, there's a reference to the occurrence of peace. Interestingly enough, that concept is quoted in the book of Peter in the New Testament. And in so doing, we learn there Jesus is our peace. He's the one that provides it to you and to me. Once we pass the book of Nahum, what about Habakkuk? The little three-chapter book of Habakkuk. Who is the Christ as we learn in that little book? It helps us appreciate the following. Habakkuk contains a passage that is quoted three times in the New Testament. We're all familiar with it. It reads like this. The just shall live by faith. And so in Habakkuk we learn that the Christ is the author of those that are just, the author of those which are of faith. Paul quoted that in the New Testament. And we learn the sweetness of it as seen even in the book of Galatians and finally in the book of Hebrews. Following that particular book, what about Zephaniah? Again, a little book of only three chapters. But in Zephaniah, who is the Christ? He is the one who is the bringer in of a pure language. In Zephaniah 3.9, it was prophesied that a people of pure language would arise and that they would come. 
That, of course, occurred when Christ Jesus came and when He allows you and me to not only have what would be a purer language, but the purest of all livelihoods and life given to the truth of Jesus Christ. Following Zephaniah, what about Haggai in but two chapters? In Haggai, we learn that Jesus is the descendant of Zerubbabel. That may not be as important to you and I as perhaps it should be. Zerubbabel, you see, was one who was foretold his descendant, like David, would reign in great splendor. And Jesus was a descendant of Zerubbabel. In fact, in Matthew chapter 1, as the genealogy of Jesus is presented, He is traced right through Zerubbabel all the way to David. Isn't that amazing? Two books to go. In the book of Zechariah, who is the Christ? Per square inch, the book of Zechariah has more prophecies of Jesus than any other Old Testament book, even more than Isaiah. And so in Zechariah, we learn many things about the Christ. He'd be the one who'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver. He'd be the one who would ride on a donkey triumphantly into Jerusalem. He'd be the one to serve simultaneously as priest and king. And yet Jesus, of course, is all of that. The closing book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, who is the Christ? In Malachi 4 verse 2, in a beautiful prophecy, Jesus is called the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness. You and I think about the sun that fills our sky with light and heat, and yet Jesus, in Malachi 4.2, is said to be the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness. At this point, as we close our Old Testament study, and we have seen Jesus in each and every one of them, it allows us to conclude our lesson like this. It's been our goal today to cast a spotlight on the centerpiece of Jesus. This morning, He was the centerpiece of the New Testament. Every book told us a truth connected to Him. Tonight, the same has been true of the Old Testament. Although many of those books were written hundreds and perhaps thousands of years prior to the coming of the Christ, they filled a vital place in the presentation of who the Christ was to be, what He was to make available, and even to this day, the blessings we enjoy in Him. It is with that that we'll close our lesson like this. Jesus could say in John 8, 59, Before Abraham was, I am. And so all of these things that you and I have studied tonight, the Lord was existent before all of them. He is eternal. And yet, in the fullness of time, He came. Through 4,000 years approximately of history upon earth, things were prepared so that the timing would be right and He could come precisely at the right moment. And so He did. And today, the kingdom that He established, the blessings that He makes available, they are still ours. And the Old Testament in so many ways foretold of them. This very night, given that we've learned He's the centerpiece of all 66 Bible books, is it any wonder that He should be the centerpiece of our life? Is He the centerpiece of yours? Is He the centerpiece of mine? If He isn't, we need to make some changes. The Bible calls that repentance. And if you would wish tonight to come to the Master and allow Him to fill your life and your heart with all that it could be, we'd be delighted to help you, to encourage you, to assist you. 
to study with you if that would be the thing most needful. But may I say that as one who has never become a Christian, it is the Lord who has demanded that you believe in Him. You repent of your sins and confess His name and be baptized. If you have known the wonder of that way of life and all the preciousness that went with all those prophecies, but maybe you haven't been true to it, the strain of life and the temptations of the devil have overwhelmed you in some way or another. Tonight, won't you come back to your first love? We would be happy to encourage you, to pray for you, to make acknowledgement of your confession and repentance, and we're here to help in whatever way might be needful in your life. But tonight, we each need to stand before the presence of the Master and acknowledge He's the centerpiece. And if we could help you do that tonight, we would love to assist while together we stand and while we sing.